Well, I'm going to spend 30 minutes or so telling you our, our extremely potted history um, of the civilian library um, and telling you a little bit about what you might find in it, why it was set up, um, why we might be interested in it. Um, as Wilma says, I'm rather interested in the history of institutional libraries, particularly in this parish. Um, it seems to me one of the more interesting things about the Bodleian is that it's not just a library, but a library of libraries. Um, and it's the ones inside that, particularly the historic ones, that I have an interest in. Um, why am I interested in them? Well, they often function as sort of barometers for intellectual history. If you want to work out what the horizons of scholarship are at a given time, then you need to spend time with library catalogues. Um, and that's what I do. Well, if you walk into the exhibition room, just over there, um, right on the back, uh, against, the, against the far wall, at the back of Blackwell Hall, you will see a huge display case about the Savile Library. Um, and inside, if you look down, you'll see immediately uh, a 15th century English manuscript, uh, which is an astrological manuscript, um, Sumner's Calendarium. Um, it's got a kind of moving volvel, as we call them, the, 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 the turning uh, uh, diagrams in manuscripts. Next to that, you'll see a copy of, not the first, but the second edition uh, of Copernicus, which is 1566, isn't it? Um, then next to that you'll see Kepler's Astronomia Nova, which is quite a big book, um, um, in which Kepler announces uh, various um, uh, laws, most famous um, obviously being his principle about elliptical orbits. Next to that you'll see in many ways what was a much more exciting book, um, Galileo's um, little book on, on the starry messenger, the Sidereus Nuncius of 1610, in which he says that uh, I have a new thing called a telescope and I've looked at the moon um, and I can see all sorts of ridges and mountains and pitted things in the moon. Um, and he also talks uh, um, about the new stars. He's, he calls them that he's um, discovered around Jupiter and he talks about the phases of Venus. Um, that's a, a really impressive book. Behind that, however, there is a whole row of books um, and they are printed books from the civilian library. And as you look at their spines, you'll see on their spines a lot of them have simply John Wallace written on their spine. I'll come back to that. He is one of the most um, long-serving civilian professors of geometry. Um, he actually held his chair from 1649 to 1703, which is quite a tenure. Um, alongside that, you'll see a lot of other books with a kind of CW monogram on the spine all the way down, tooled in gold. That's Christopher Wren. Um, and that tells you immediately that two of the big contributors to that library um, were John Wallace and, and Christopher Wren. Well, the Civilian Library um, is named after Henry Saville, um, the founder of the Civilian Professorships. Um, Saville uh, founds two professorships, one in geometry, one in astronomy, um, in 1619. Um, he is a quite long-lived man. He's born in 1549, dies in 1622. Um, he was one of the big men of Elizabethan learned world. Um, and his very good friend was Sir Thomas Bodley. They were both um, bigwigs in Merton College. Um, and Bodley was in many ways um, a patron of learning rather than a scholar of, of real significance himself. Um, Saville was both. Um, and Saville was very much a man who worked in, in, the, in the public sphere, as we would say, um, accruing various appointments and honours. 
um, but was also a serious scholar who from the 1570s was lecturing in Oxford um, on astronomy. Um, remarkably, he lectures publicly on the Copernican and the Ptolemaic system side by side, uh, making him really not quite an exponent of Copernicanism as a full physical model, but certainly an explainer of the mathematical consequences of Copernicanism extremely early. This is in the 1570s, when really one can number on, on two hands the number of committed Copernicans in Europe at, at that time. People were much more keen on his mathematics. They weren't quite so sold on, on the physical system that the mathematics implied. Well, um, Saville had an idea in, in, in the uh, second decade of the 17th century to found two chairs um, in the mathematical arts. Well, he called them his mathematical readers. Um, and we have one in geometry um, and one in astronomy, and obviously they still go on today. Um, and they're attached to my college, New College. Uh, the reason why, incidentally, is that they're, initially they didn't have college fellowships. Um, but in the, uh, in the 19th century reforms, uh, some bright spark pointed out that the medieval statutes of New College from the um, 1370s and 80s contained provision for two of the 70 fellows to study astronomy if they wished. Um, and on this piece of uh, antiquarian wit, the professors were reassigned to New College in the Victorian reforms. So that's why they're where they, where they are now. Well, Saville equipped his professors with a library. Um, and that library sat in, in, the, in the Great Tower, um, the Tower of the Orders, as you walk into the Bodleian. Um, the thing immediately above your head as you walk through the gate is the original Saville Library. Um, it's, it's now the kind of collection desk in the lower reading room. Um, but that was where the civilian professors hung out, um, and they had a, a study on either side for the geometry professor and the astronomy professor, and they shared a study in the middle, which is where all their books were. This also gave them access to the top of the tower, uh, which they ascended and pointed telescopes at the sky. Um, and I might tell you a little bit about um, the instruments that they had as well. An early modern library tends to contain books, but also other things, typically coins. Um, the Savile Library doesn't have coins, but instruments as well, mathematical instruments. And the Savile Library has quite a few of those that I'll, I'll tell you about in a minute. Well, um, this library was augmented down the centuries by the holders of the civilian chair um, until it really conked out in the late Victorian period and was handed over to the Bodleian in its entirety in 1884. Um, it had always, as it were, been geographically part of the Bodleian, but it was institutionally separate. Um, but nonetheless, I'm going to tell you um, a little bit about, um, uh, about this library, as it's really one of the most historically significant scientific libraries in the West. Um, and it contains both manuscripts and printed books, um, almost entirely in mathematics, um, but with some very interesting exceptions as well. It was also a library that accrued various manuscripts that were presented to it by people. I think by the late 17th century, it was clearly being thought of as a place where one could deposit important objects. Um, and I'll mention a few of those. Well, first of all, um, some professors. When the chair in geometry was founded, um, 1619, the first holder was a man called Henry Briggs. Um, he was followed by a man called Peter Turner. Um, then by the exceptionally long-lived John Wallace, who is the Eminence Grise of 17th century Oxford, um, a right miserable man. Um, <laughs> and then following his death in 1703, Edmund Halley. By that point, the civilian professors were living in New College Lane, um, John Wallace had bagged that house um, just on your uh, left-hand side as you go down New College Lane in the crook in the corner. Um, and when uh, Wallace died, Wallace's son arranged for the two professors to hold the lease of that house in perpetuity, which they did um, until, in historical terms, quite recently. Um, that is why there is a turret on top of that building. 
that was the observatory of the civilian professors in the early 18th century, um, and Edmund Halley will have used that turret. Um, I had a visit last week from three people from London who wanted to see it. Um, the turret is not particularly interesting. Uh, the birds got in and trashed the place, uh, but we, we whitewashed it, and, and there's a 19th century telescope in it, but it's at the top of a student staircase, so I had to give the students notice on Saturday morning uh, that we were going to crash in mid midday and walk up the staircase, scattering students as we went. Um, as for the astronomy professor, the, the first one there, again, both chairs founded in 1690, is John Bainbridge, um, an interesting character, uh, who was then followed by John Greaves, who's an extremely interesting man who I'll tell you a bit about, because he went to Egypt. That was followed by Seth Ward, one of the, uh, we associate him with the Wilkins crowd in Wadham, um, Ward actually talked the civilian trustees into allowing him to build telescopes off the top of the central tower of Wadham. Um, and so the astronomy towers of Oxford go roughly the central Bodleian Tower, the Wadham Tower, and then New College Lane. That's the three um, historical ones that the civilian professors were using. Um, after him comes Christopher Wren, um, and after him comes an interesting metrologist called Edward Bernard, and then finally David Gregory, who's an, a name you all know. Well, Saville has close connections with Bodley, um, as I've said. Uh, they were both the grandees of Merton <coughs> College, um, and Bodley uh, appointed Saville as one of the executors to mm -hmm. his will. Um, Bodley uh, also asks Saville for various bits and bobs for the library itself, which is opened, obviously, um, a decade and a half before the civilian professors. Um, and so Saville is quite a significant donor to the Bodley in itself, um, and these, these donations are quite separate from, from the civilian chairs. Um, when Bodley dies, he, he gives a silver salt with his arms on it, worth £20 um, to Saville in his will. Saville clearly thought uh, about his new foundation, the, um, the library uh, that he wanted to attach to his chairs, in terms that were very influenced by Bodley. Um, yesterday I was looking at a collection of papers now known as Saville 101, uh, which is uh, various bits and bobs that were scraped together. Um, and bound up, and one of them contains in Saville's extremely scratchy handwriting. Saville has really bad uh, uh, handwriting. Um, his ideas about how he wanted his chair to function and how he wanted his library to function. Um, he wanted a parchment register of his books to be kept, and he wants this to be held by the keeper of the library. So he actually sees this really as, as quite intertwined with the Bodleian connections, even at this date. Um, he says that books can be lent, which is a very interesting provision, that's not true of the Bodleian, but only to the two professors who hold the chairs. Um, and it's quite strict. They have to give caution money worth the value of the book before they're allowed to loan it, and they all have to be returned every year in order for an annual check to take place, which is, again, following the statutes of the Bodleian at the time. So one thing I learned yesterday was that the Civilian Library actually was set up to mimic uh, the Bodleian collections, um, and that makes sense. It's held in the same place. Um, the other thing I saw yesterday, uh, which was rather fun, is that I, I tracked down what this, this um, early list of books probably is, um, which is the, um, the indenture that, um, that um, Saville makes with the university about what books he's going to give to his professors. It's probably a, a, a manuscript of about 1620. Um, and it turned up in a tiny little box as a roll. Um, and it's quite rare to find rolls in, in Bodleian records. Uh, they're very common in other forms of administrative document, but um, early modern rolls in libraries are quite rare. Um, and it's about this wide, um, but it's three and a half metres long, um, and it unrolls all the way down like this. So I had to kind of arrange it down with snake weights down the table and, uh, and see what was there. And, and Saville's scratchy signature is right at the bottom, three and a half metres down. Um, 
Well, Saville gives this uh, set of books and manuscripts. He actually, it, it's often said for those who are library, library nerds, it's often said he gives printed books and then only later thinks about manuscripts. This is not true. Um, he's obviously giving in this, in this list several manuscripts of his own um, and indeed several of his own writings. Um, and it's in this donation to establish his chair that he hands over a lot of annotated books, very important in the history of mathematics is annotated books. Um, because you often copied down chains of recensions of great mathematicians and you track them across Europe. Um, and he hands over his own lecture notes, um, particularly the lectures from the 1570s that he's been giving, and that's, that's how we have those texts. Um, so um, his little manuscript that he hands over with all the books uh, is headed for the use chiefly of the mathematical readers who may borrow any of them, putting in a sufficient real caution. Um, which must mean uh, is sufficient caution that he's crossed it out and written real above, by which he wants to underscore that the cash value of the books has to be put down. Um, as I look down that list, the kind of things that, that you see are Greek, Latin, English, Italian books. He's very keen on Italian books as well. Um, he has uh, the standard ancient writers, of course, but he has some modern writers as well, which, given the date, are rather interesting. Scaliger on the cycloid, um, Diggs and Wright, the great um, English practical mathematicians, William Gilbert, the, the, um, the big man of English science at the time, his book on the Magnet of 1600, um, and Savile's own papers. Um, and this is the library which is put in that room, which is just over the, over the tower, um, and it grows um, very, very significantly in the 17th century, and then it slows down after that. Many of the manuscripts that Savile gave are Greek mathematical manuscripts, they are actually quite recent. An awful lot of them are, are um, 14th, 15th century copies of older texts. Um, so Savile has been picking up on the continent um, quite a lot of, of, of recent copies of mathematical texts, um, which underscores once again that mathematical publishing is expensive and slow, um, and as a result, the circulation of mathematical texts in manuscript um, continues really quite late. Various other genres are easier to print, Mathematical books are hard, um, and the proofreading is particularly difficult for mathematical books. Um, looking at the manuscripts um, themselves that are in the Savile collection today, you can see that successive professors have started donating their papers. Peter Turner, who I mentioned earlier on, um, he gives a whole stack of uh, manuscripts. One of them, uh, which I was looking at, is a copy of Apollonius's Conics, had actually been Savile's own manuscript. So Savile gave it to Turner, and Turner gave it back to the Savile Library. Um, and this bears collations down the side from a manuscript in Paris um, that shows that Savile has been traveling and collating uh, uh, mathematical texts. So Savile is, is a serious scholar himself. Um, this manuscript also shows how the professors kept things in use. It has uh, diagrams added to it. And they were added by David Gregory in 1707. So there we have a text which has been uh, collated by the main man, given to one of his professors, given back to the library, taken out a century, almost a century later, um, and drawn over by a subsequent professor. This manuscript itself actually then was the manuscript from which the printed edition of this text in 1710 um, was set. Um, and that's actually something which is quite common in the Savile manuscripts is the manuscripts behind Oxford printed books. Um, there are four or five manuscripts that were used to print up mathematical texts, particularly by John Wallace, who had a habit of um, getting manuscripts made up for the press, printing from them, and then depositing them back in the library. 
Some of the manuscripts have common origins. People are interested in, in the deep history of libraries, behind libraries. Um, there's a whole group of these manuscripts that ultimately came from the Franciscan monks of Doncaster, uh, which is rather, uh, rather interesting, at least two of which then bear the signature of the Elizabethan mathematician uh, John Dee, um, who will be known to, to all of you. Um, and so I presume all of those Doncaster manuscripts came through Dee, um, and that they eventually ended up in Savile's hands and then in his library. Um, one of these, um, which is a copy of Boethius's Arithmetic, um, is actually presented to Dee by a man called Christopher Saxton, who some of you will know as the great Elizabethan cartographer. So there's a lot of patterns of um, exchange and donation hiding around in the Savile manuscripts. Um, the manuscripts also contain Savile's own translation of Ptolemy's Almagest, um, with the commentaries of Theon and Cabasilas, and that was actually the text on which Savile gained his MA. So it's really his kind of MA thesis, if you like, which is hanging around there. Um, there are also uh, a set of four manuscripts, which are his lecture notes from 1570, which, as I say, are very exciting for historians of science because they show what was going on at the cutting edge of mathematics and astronomy in the 1570s in Oxford. Um, and Savile, in the standard Oxonian way, is not dogmatic. A very important thing to understand about the history of science in the English universities is that particularly in the post-Reformation universities, they prided themselves on not banning texts. Um, Catholic universities said, you know, you can't uh, read this donet corrigato until it is corrected. Uh, the Protestants, rightly or wrongly, in, in England certainly, less so in the Low Countries, um, prided themselves on, on not censoring. But the concomitant to that is that they also did not like saying very solidly, we believe in Copernicus or we believe this. But that would be to fall into the error of dogmatism again. Um, so when I say that Savile lectures on different systems side by side, I don't want to say that he's some sort of pussyfooting fence-sitter. I want to say that this is real intellectual honesty of that time, to say, well, there are various theories about how this might work. And the English pride themselves on that, the libertas philosophandi, uh, right through the 17th century. Well, what else can we find there? Um, John Greaves, I mentioned earlier on, I said he, he travelled in the Orient, um, John Greaves's papers were there. He is my favourite um, of the civilian professors. He was a metrologist. He wrote books about the uh, uh, Roman coinage and uh, the weights of coinage, a very technical form of numismatics, quite different from the, there's a picture of a pretty emperor on this. Uh, he was really interested in ancient weights and measures. Um, but he was also extremely interested in the pyramids. Um, in the 1630s, he goes out to Egypt with um, a set of Oxford mathematical tools on his back, uh, he takes a camel ride to the Great Pyramids and he crawls inside and he measures it with instruments from Oxford. He comes back and he publishes a book called Pyramidographia, uh, which is all about his journeys into the pyramids. Um, he, it's an extremely sensible book and it contains some remarkable statements in it. Um, for the Bodleian people here, he refers to a Chinese map in his keeping, which is an extremely interesting remark. Uh, I have some ideas about what that map is. It's not the Selden map, but it's, there are earlier maps of China knocking around the Bodleian. Uh, not as famous as the Selden map, but I know of at least two, uh, and I really do wonder where uh, um, his map of China went. He said it's printed in China, so it's a, it's a real one that's come across. Um, well, Greaves was uh, walking around in the pyramids, and... Uh, he had a notebook with him, and you can order it up in the Savile Manuscripts today, and I think it's clearly been in his pocket on, on camelback, because the thing is, is bent round like this. It follows the line of one's thigh, um, and it is an extraordinary thing. 
it has pencil hieroglyphs in it that must have been drawn from hieroglyphic reliefs in the 1630s. Um, that's quite a wandering around for a civilian professor at the time. Um, and it really is, I think, one of the most astonishing objects I know in the Bodleian. Um, but that went into the Savile manuscripts. Um, what was Greaves' interest in the pyramids? If I digress very slightly, um, it's crazier than it sounds. Um, Greaves said that um, in the modern world we have such a problem with the uh, uh, weights and measures in different countries using different weights and measures. If only we could all agree on a kind of, you know, a meter in a box somewhere, then we could all understand what we were saying. And he says, well, the interior dimensions of the Great Chamber in the Great Pyramid have remained unchanged for thousands of years. Why don't we adopt that as the international standard of measurement? Which is quite an idea. It didn't catch on. Um, that interest in Orientalism, by the way, is also witnessed in the papers in a rather surprising <coughs> manuscript as well, uh, Savile 48, um, which is the manuscript of William Adams, who some of you will know as a navigator of the period, who went to Japan, Siam, Cochin, China, uh, on a series of different voyages between 1614 and 1619. Um, and that manuscript was deposited in the Savile papers, uh, where it was not recognized for centuries until... In the early 20th century, someone dug it out and said, this is amazing, and I can tell you who it is as well. Um, and that was only published in 1916. Well, there are various unpublished works as well, um, which are contemporary to the, um, the time of the civilian chairs. Um, I was looking yesterday at a rather peculiar, enormous manuscript by a man called John Chambers, who was um, a relatively minor academic. Um, he was a fellow at Eton. Um, but he wrote this enormous manuscript called A Confutation of Astrological Demonology. Um, and it's this enormous book um, with wonderful um, binding, um, uh, the, the royal arms inside it. It's written in a beautiful calligraphic hand. And it is obviously written for the king. Um, and it has the king, James I, his arms inside it. And I'm not entirely sure what, therefore, it is doing in the Savile manuscripts. But my, my guess is that it was uh, written up for the king, but somehow it was given to Savile instead. The two men had connections together um, and ended up in the Savile Library. Why is this manuscript important, I wondered? And the answer to this, I think, is this. Savile's um, statutes for his chair contain a very interesting clause, which is that his professors shall not lecture on astrology. Um, that is, in intellectual terms, um, a rather modernist statement. Um, Saville, like actually quite a lot of Calvinist theologians of the time, and Saville and Bodley would have identified themselves as of that particular parish, um, had a healthy scepticism about astrology, judicial astrology. Um, and Saville is remarkable in saying that mathematical lecturers will not treat of astrology, which is really one of the major functions of mathematical knowledge at the time, is the calculation of astrological problems. So Savile says that's, that's not what I'm interested in. Um, Chambers is also not interested in it, and this is a book about how ridiculous astrology is. Um, and I think that is why it's in the Savile Library. We assume from the other end of that argument um, that it's, it's a kind of uh, it's a done deal by that time, but it really isn't. Um, and the civilian foundation in being anti-astrological um, is really quite um, remarkable at the time. Well, I mentioned some instruments, um, and I want to tell you a little bit about what you might find there as well, which isn't a book. Um, the Greaves brothers, uh, I mentioned uh, John Greaves, uh, the man inside the pyramid. He had a brother called Thomas Greaves, who was also a remarkable academic at the time. 
Um, they were both Orientalists as well. Um, they were some of the early proficient scholars of Arabic in the university. And there's a very interesting connection between Arabic and the civilian chairs. Um, quite a few of the later professors were the leading Arabists of their time as well. Edward Bernard is a particular example. And Edmund Halley as well, who repeat, uh, reputedly taught himself Arabic uh, by looking at parallel uh, Arabic-Greek and working out from there, if one believes that. Um, but the Greaves brothers um, bequeathed to the civilian study a set of instruments, and this was thought important enough that the list was printed in a late 17th century catalogue of Oxford books. Um, the civilian establishment's remarkable in this catalogue because all the printed books were, uh, were listed and printed in what we call Bernard's catalogue, which is the first union catalogue of manuscripts. Um, and the only non-manuscript things in it are the civilian books and the civilian instruments. Um, so it was clearly thought of as an extremely important integral phenomenon, important enough to be catalogued as one. And looking down the list, uh, what the brothers gave, so if you're walking into the, what is now the uh, catalogue room in the, uh, or the collection desk in the lower reading room, mm -hmm. uh, in the late 17th century there, you would have found an astrolabe, a quadrant, two sextants, two octants, a mural quadrant, a quadrant with telescopes fitted onto each of its arms, uh, a two, a six, and a 15-foot telescope, um, a pendulum clock, very important, um, a wooden globe, a demonstration cone, a pair of great compasses, um, and all of Euclid's elements in diagrams carved in wood. I wonder what happened to them. So when we think of the civilian library as it appeared from the 1650s, we must imagine it not just as filled with books and manuscripts, um, but also with instruments uh, probably hung on the wall, most of them. Um, some of the manuscript teaching tools from the Restoration survive, actually, which is... Uh, remarkable. Um, there are some astronomical tables, diagrams, there are some diagrams of moving parts, for instance, um, and there are various charts as well that were used for teaching, were hung on the walls. We associate most of these with John Wallace, um, and any of you who are interested in this, these are Saville 100 and 105, uh, if you want to see what the teaching charts for the Civilian Foundation look like. Well, Wallace also presented his library with quite a lot of material, manuscripts that were given to Wallace. Uh, Wallace took his duties in the university very seriously, some would say too seriously. Uh, he was also the keeper of the archives, um, and you will uh, recognize him from Anthony Wood's diaries, and perhaps from the gruesome portrayal of him in Ian Pierce's instance of the finger post um, as the miserable, uh, rather messed up Wallace, uh, which I suspect is unfortunately quite close to the truth. Um, Wallace presents manuscripts that he'd used for various mathematical works. One of them is in the hand of the great paleographer Humphrey Wanley, um, who had the most beautiful facsimile hand of the time. Um, he was the genius of manuscript scholarship in the late 17th, early 18th century, um, and Wallace engaged him to produce copies of texts for the press. Um, and so that is why we have Wanley copying mathematical manuscripts in the civilian library. The other major donor of the period, as I mentioned, who we shouldn't forget is Christopher Wren. And as I said, you can immediately tell his books because they have the CW monogram all the way down the spine. And they are, as one would expect, chiefly mathematical. Well. To conclude about what happened after then, um, in the 18th century, like most things in Oxford, the library went to sleep, uh, and uh, not an immense amount happened. Uh, the civilian professors at that point were happily ensconced in New College Lane, um, and it would be wonderful to know what exactly Halley was observing from that turret in New College Lane. This was after many of the, of the headline discoveries of Halley, um, but he can't have been doing nothing, and I, I would very much like a historian of astronomy to, to work that problem out. Um, 
The chair, however, was revitalized in the early 19th century by a figure known to you in the history of science as Stephen Peter Rigo. Um, he is remarkable because he swapped chairs um, in 1827. He is, I think, the only civilian professor who held both chairs. Uh, held one for uh, a few decades and then swapped over onto the other for a few decades, which technically means he had to swap house in New College Lane. I don't know if he did, uh, but one half was for one professor and one half was for the other. And then they came to a deal and swapped over at some point, but I don't know if Rigo had to sort of, you know, take his bed linen next door when he switched. But, but anyway, he revitalised the library completely. Um, he was very interested in the history of science as well, and he buys a lot of early modern manuscripts and donates them to the Savile Collection, so we're in the rather weird position of looking at early modern objects that were actually Victorian purchases and then placed back in the library. Um, he was a historian of science, as I say, as well as a, as a practicing uh, mathematician. He wrote a book on the publication of Newton's Principia, for instance, um, and he edited several sets of letters of early scientists that many of us would have come across. Um, inside the Savile Library, there survives rather interestingly lists of all the undergraduates who attended his lectures. It's because you have to pay a fee, it's a sort of uh, extra course. Um, and right from 1811 to 1838, all these lists survive, which is an interesting window um, into who was interested in the teaching of astronomy and geometry in uni university. Um, these were actually placed in the civilian study not by Rigo, but by his successor, who rejoices in the name Baden Powell. Um, and he is the father um, of Robert Baden-Powell, the, the, the founder of the Scouts. Uh, so it's rather peculiar for fellows of New College to think that the founder of the Scouts was playing in the garden in New College Lane. Um, well, the later history of the library as an institution can be summarised briefly. The Savile Room, uh, which is the name for the room that was over the tower, uh, was handed over fully to the Bobbian in 1834, and they agreed that they would find a kind of cupboard to chuck all the stuff in. Um, and this was in the southeast angle of the, of the quadrangle, so the bit where the kind of the old shop is. Um, and that was called the Savile Study, into which all the stuff was really pushed, which I think is a sign that it was not really an active resource anymore. Um, and in 1884, as I say, the library was formally made over to the, the Bobbian, and that's an acknowledgement, I think, that the contents of the civilian study had become of historical interest rather than practical interest of the professors who don't really have any serious engagement with the books from that point on. Um, but the legacy of the civilian chairs as a historical construct um, was maintained by the library. And in fairness to the Bodleian, um, there is a, a good deal of interest shown in the civilian papers in the early 20th century. Um, in 1914, for instance, medieval manuscript fragments that were used for binding printed books were, following the custom in Oxford at the time, taken out um, of all the civilian printed books and placed <coughs> in, a, in a separate manuscript. So if you look up Manuscript Savile 106, you will find all these chunks of medieval, cut-up medieval manuscript that were stripped out of the printed books in the Savile Library. In 1978, really quite recently, um, Stephen Rigo's papers were actually purchased at auction in Sotheby's um, and were added to the, to the Bodleian Library here. So it seems to me that the library has taken over custodianship um, of this internal library um, and has done so well. And that's really the ongoing responsibility of the library as well as its privilege. Um, the Bodleian has swallowed up several libraries and those acts of swallowing are in themselves historically interesting as markers about how we divide up knowledge and how the disciplines are curated and how the history of the disciplines is curated. Um, and the Bodleian has swallowed up quite a few scientific libraries, we could say, 
Perhaps the other major one to think about is the Ashmolean Library that came in the 19th century as well. But anyway, that is the civilian library. It's an extremely important uh, library in and of itself, but it has a lot of stories internally about the professors and what they did, whether it was crawling through pyramids or stalking around New College Lane, um, but also some stories behind the books, particularly the medieval manuscripts, um, of who had owned those texts in the Middle Ages. Um, and as such, it is one of the most interesting and accurate barometers for the history of particularly mathematics and astronomy in the period. Um, thank you very much.